0: You're listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, everybody. My name is Octavio fernandez Mostajo. My
1: name is Claire Perini.
0: And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast, episode 100. Episode
1: 100. Friends, a few years ago, in the summer of 2016, uh, someone on staff at Regent, James Smoker, had this crazy idea and said, I think Mocha. we should start a podcast. We've got microphones, we've got great people coming through our building all the time Mm. and we should just have conversations with them. And the
0: Regent College podcast was born. The Regent College podcast was born. Yeah, it's great. The conversations are different than a class. I mean, you can have a, 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 a great speaker, you know, do the spiel and teach you a great subject But it's totally different when you're in a one-on-one or two-to-one conversation with different things come out of those people.
1: Yeah. So the idea was just to have informal conversations over a whole range of topics around Mm -hmm. some of the ideas and the people that shape the way that we think and the way that we worship at Regent College. So in this 100th episode, Octavio and I decided we would just share with you some of our highlights over the last 100 episodes. And let you reflect back on some of the things this the good conversations that we've had Over the last couple of years
0: In this last two years We've really tried to be diverse In the sense of who who's talking with us Yeah, it's women, men from Africa White men from China And different topics So we've really tried I hope you know it's that we really tried to engage with, with Different kinds of people And and we came up with the top 15 conversations we had on a podcast. Not 10. It, it wasn't possible to pick 10. We picked 15. Uh, and e- each one, I had my picks and Claire ha- had her picks. This doesn't mean that these are the best and they will not come in a particular order whatsoever. But it's, yeah, it's 15. And and since we're going to uh, show you snippets of those conversations this is going to be part one of our episode 100
1: Should we get started?
0: I think we sh- should okay. Claire
1: Moment number 15 is on episode 39 Rethinking Education with Jeff Greenman and Raphael Hauser Was one of my favourite ones Because uh, we started talking about education as being uh, more about the learner than about the teacher uh, and this whole idea of when care and education and whole person formation and holistic education um, happens and just the goodness of that so let's listen back to that one clearly this vision of education excites you in some ways um, in in deep ways how have you practically how have you how have you sought to integrate this kind of a vision um, and Jeff you said at the beginning teaching and education is not about Mm. Teaching is actually about learning. So mm. how have you as a teacher sought to cultivate these kind of environments of learning and education that you're talking about? How does that go? Where does it work and where does it doesn't where doesn't it work?
2: Well I try and Raphael actually had my class on, on learning and the art of teaching, so he knows how I try to do it as well. You can tell ask him whether it really works. But for me part of it is uh, I am very excited about that sort of vision, but a learning centered vision, I think really tries to spark people's curiosity. It, it it tries to tap into what questions people are bringing with them into the learning that, that we're doing, the subject that we're studying, whatever that is. It takes the learner very seriously. Who are you as a learner? What are your questions? What are your concerns? What do you want to do at the end of this course? How could this actually serve you? So I tilt more in the direction of being learner-centered rather than subject-centered, if I could put it that way. So content matters, and there's a lot of content in my classes. I I haven't been accused of going light on it. Um, but, uh, But it's more than just getting through the content that matters to me. It's really that the students would engage, that the students would be present, that the students would really be... Uh, stuck in and chewing on good things together, learning with one another, learning from one another, and asking questions like, okay, if all this is so, what do I do with this? How do I apply this? Where do I use this? That sort of wrestling with stuff makes it so exciting for me, rather than just kind sort of getting through the notes, just mm-hmm. getting through the content, mm-hmm. having everybody feel like it was good because we got through 12 weeks and we made it to the end on yeah. time. I just think it's, it's really about engagement, it's about interaction, it's about wrestling, it's about asking, so what, and how do we do this? That sort of vision I, I've tried to build into my classes, mm-hmm. whether they're on ethics or whether they're on leadership or whether they're on teaching and learning or whatever else. Because that quest I think is just fun, mm-hmm. it's exciting, and the worst thing in the world would be to bore people. Like if if you're in a class and somehow people are bored, what has gone wrong here? It's not that I'm trying to tell jokes or you know juggle or or do something.
1: Can you joke?
2: I, I I can't <laughs> juggle. I, it would be rather amusing to watch me try, probably. But it's more the fun of the adventure of learning together, right? And it's together is part of it because we're relational beings. And it's a quest for something that's beyond us that, that we're all intrigued by, that we all want. Mm-hmm. Whether that's to know more about what teaching and learning is or more more what God wants us to do in the world or more of what leadership is or more of what this or that is. The topic, in a sense, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's the quest mm-hmm. to go deeper with it, engage it and, and sort of get to the marrow of it that I think is the fun, there's real fun in that, the way that God has wired us, and I enjoy doing that with people.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I um, So I used to be an early childhood teacher, so I used to spend my days with three-, four-, and five-year-olds. And <laughs>
2: and now you're dean of students at Regent <laughs> College. And, oh, that's so, right. and the, sl-
1: the similarities between... Yes. Um, kind of three and four year olds and yeah. adult education is remarkably yeah. kind of close. We could
2: use nap time around here so <laughs> we
1: could. <laughs> that would do, be do yeah, it. I'm a yeah. big fan of the advocating yeah. for the nap. But it's yeah. this it's funny, in an in an early childhood context, the whole the whole person or the whole kid yeah. is taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. So if they're learning to tie their shoelaces, that's just as important yeah. as them understanding that two comes after one. And yeah. that whole kind of all that whole person formation is what happens when you're little. And then somehow it kind of gets warped, and then it's sort of like we're trying to then recover it again in mm-hmm. kind of in adult education to say no, no, your whole person matters. And yeah. I think that's what I've seen here at Regent. Yeah. This the, at early in early childhood, you see care and education going hand in hand. So yeah, yeah kind of in that kind of pre school age, and then I see that in education at Regent. Mm-hmm. If 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 there's not a care for a person and there's not an understanding of who they are and all of those kinds of things, actually what God's brought them here to learn will be very difficult for them to learn because those two things mm-hmm. kind of go hand in hand. So it's interesting mm-hmm. It's interesting the ways yeah. that those uh, things kind of circle around uh, again.
2: Yeah. I said to some of my colleagues not here at... at uh, at Regent, but before I came to Regent, my colleagues in another institution, I think I shocked them because I said that uh, graduate school should be more like kindergarten. Mm. And they thought, like, oh, this guy has completely lost it. What is wrong with him? Can we please get him out of here? Um, but what I mean, of course, is, is not that the content of graduate school looks like the content of kindergarten at all, but in a sense, the process and the way that people are treated and the whole person formation. And I remember my little blue blanket from kindergarten that we had our naps on. Mm um and the point even about naps that we're joking about is significant because graduate school doesn't take seriously really an embodied person and a body is there just to be driven as hard as we can possibly drive it well you don't think that about kindergarten mm. like why do we think that about adults huh i don't know And the kindergarten is about a whole person experience of a community, Mm -hmm. and it's about learning these things Howard Gardner cares about, like respectful relationships, Mm -hmm. social skills, you know? Well, some of that is also important to talk about at graduate school Mm -hmm. because the church needs a way of being in the world as God's people where our social skills, if you want to call it that, our ways of being civil, our ways of engaging topics, our ways of disagreeing, agreeably and reasonably all matter. That matters to the church's witness. So, that's what I'm driving at by saying it's more like kindergarten, really. It's that sort of skill development, relationality, content, yes, We're not teaching people how to tie their shoes in graduate school, but we're teaching them for the very first time to do things they've never done before, Mm -hmm. like parse a Greek verb, which is just as foreign as learning to tie your shoes when you're a little kid. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of new learning that's stressful, and partly the, the, the ECE or kindergarten analogy is... I think teachers in that context know that this is a stressful experience. We're going to accompany you, and we're going to take you seriously as an embodied learner, as a Mm -hmm. person with emotions, as a person with ideas, as a person with relationships, Mm -hmm. as a person with a family. I just think that's a more holistic view of what education is, Mm -hmm. and therefore how teaching and learning works. Mm -hmm. That sort of thing is what I mean, rather than just Mm -hmm. um, uh, a kind of uh, craziness, maybe, I'm accused of from time to time.
3: (laughs)
0: Okay, that was amazing. And now moment number fourteen. This moment is actually my pick, because so it's gotta be better than Claire's, I guess. <laughs> uh, if this moment fourteen is with John Walton. That was in the summer. John Walton visited Regent. And I mean it was really hard to pick what we're talk what we're going what we're going to talk about with John Walton because he's written a lot. But we picked, you know, let's start at the beginning, Genesis. So this conversation was all about Genesis one and two. And so many things written about Genesis 1 and 2, you know. It's complicated, creationism, evolutionism, and, and you know, all the in-betweens. Uh, so this was a real eye-opener. Uh, it was just Genesis 1 and 2. So just have a listen. This one's amazing. And, and remember, in the ancient world, to some extent,
4: they didn't really care what the gods were like. They just wanted to do whatever they had to do to keep the gods happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The gods can be what they want to be, and it's kind of beyond, you know, above their pay grade, yeah. you know, to, <laughs> yeah. to, to figure that out. But they, they just wanted the practical things. What do I have mm-hmm. to do yeah. to be in favor with the God so that I get good things instead of bad things?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And,
4: you know, just keep it simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's, that's all I need to know. They would have thought it was well beyond them to try to know God
0: right yeah let me ask something that i I just thought about of course they couldn't even dream about loving their god or having communion with a god they have no idea about right they don't know who who he is or who she is whatever and and what Mm. they like or not but like do you think back then for israelites in the in the time of moses for example do, do you think they loved God and had like a, a, a communion or relationship with God as we see it today? But like besides Moses that the kind of, we, we can say, really knew God, you think the rest were seeking a loving relationship with God? Well, see,
4: as as people in the ancient world, that wouldn't be their inclination. Mm. Uh-huh. People didn't think of their gods that way. Um, they Not even them, they, they, like
0: the Israelites with the Torah, not even them. Well,
4: I'm just saying that wouldn't be their natural inclination. In other words, you wouldn't go into into it all saying, oh, I'd really like to be in a loving relationship with God. That just wouldn't be how things worked in the ancient Uh world. Now, did the covenant and the Torah open up new opportunities for them to interact with God at a different level? Well, for that, you have to think about a term like love. Uh What's conveyed by that? Is it it Mm. something like we often think about something emotional and uh, those sorts of things? Do they want an emotional feeling about God? Mm. Or are we talking about something that, say, committed faithfulness to God? Uh, You know, exactly Mm. what do we mean when Mm. we use the term love? Um, There have been studies that have been done um, quite some time ago now that have demonstrated that the use of the word love and hate – Uh, had largely political ramifications. Uh, You, um, vassals and suzerains, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the the vassal loves the the suzerain, their overlord. Uh, But that simply means like that there's a preferential treatment Mm -hmm. going Mm -hmm. on. Um, And even when God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, that doesn't talk about God's emotions. Mm. We'll set aside the question of God having emotions, but, but that's not what that's addressing. It's mm. talking about the fact that I've loved Jacob. That means I chose him. And I've entered into this relationship of all sorts of dimensions with him. And Esau, I've not. Um, as a matter of fact, in the ancient world, they would use the term that we translate hate um, when a husband wanted to divorce a wife. He would just say, I hate her. Mm-hmm. And that was a legal statement that she is no longer mm. in this preferential relationship yeah. with him. It has nothing to do with I'm angry with her, and yeah. right. it it doesn't carry that connotation. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, preference or non-preference can sometimes be. Uh, can include emotional responses. Mm. Uh, so, I don't want to rule out that, mm. but those words in and of themselves don't intrinsically carry that aspect. Yeah. So, when we talk about uh, the psalmist uh, saying, I love you, Lord, or they uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, um, that's, that's really talking about a, an intentional act of the will of, of choice and commitment Rather than mm. uh, I'm working myself up into an emotional frenzy. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. yeah. What I'm thinking is like, because I would think maybe, maybe by you know by the time of David, I don't know, I'm, I'm it's, way, it's way too evangelical. Like, because I'm thinking, because by the time of David, I would think like maybe they would would have developed at least David that kind of. I don't know, maybe more romanticized love towards God. But what I'm thinking of right now is about Abraham. Because, you know, Abraham was called friend of God. But Abraham, it goes like way back, like way back, right? And, and maybe its concept was even more ancient Near Eastern than David. I don't even know if that's correct. But what I'm thinking is like, because mm. I would envision, you know... It's your podcast. Yeah. Because <laughs> I would envision Abraham, you know, being the friend of God and mm. the one that had faith in God But I think I've been uh, looking at Abraham with such evangelical lenses. Because Abraham, you know, he talks to God all the time, and and he's a friend of God. And and, yeah, but what you're saying is his concept of friendship with God or love with God is... Our, our, thousands of years of difference.
4: Modern Western ideas of friendship uh-huh. very much come into this. What does it mean to a, be a friend of someone in the ancient world? Yeah. Exactly. And what connotation does that, does that carry? So the whole idea of, of friendship has to be parsed out in its own context, mm. in its own cultural context. Mm. Okay? So, uh, that idea of trying to imagine what that would have looked like. I mean, you talk about having these conversations with God. Well, wait a second, count them up. You know, in Genesis, there are eight times when Abraham has a conversation with God, and we wouldn't really call them a conversation. (laughs) God talks, he (laughs)
3: listens. uh,
4: Occasionally, he does say something like huh yeah (laughs)
1: really yeah
4: (laughs) Yeah. well how's that gonna work it's not usually recorded but it's probably there somewhere yeah (laughs) so it's eight conversations and most of them he knows less coming out Mm. than he knew coming in right and and Uh, really has has no clue about what god is really doing yeah and i don't think they would we would necessarily call those satisfying Mm. on a communication level (laughs) so you know that if you feel like You know, they're just good buddies having Uh, these long chat sessions. We can't assume that. Mm. We know of eight conversations, and they Mm -hmm. were brief, and they were largely one-sided. And so, if we say that's what friendship is, well, no. um, If Mm. we we just keep to the information we have, it's hard to to figure out how Mm -hmm. to call that friendship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. you know this is this is an area that we call cognitive semantics that is we have words that we have certain meanings to whether it's friend or love or rest or whatever it is and we have certain meanings we attach to that cognitive semantics says you have to say wait a minute what kind of what kind of baggage or packaging did that word carry Mm. in an ancient context Um, and we have to make that distinction it may be you'd still translate it the same way but it may carry very different connotations Mm -hmm. uh, in an ancient world Mm -hmm.
5: context Mm -hmm.
1: Moment 13 for me uh, was our episode on talking about the book of Revelation with Paul Spilsbury and I had like a Mind blow moment When we were <laughs> oh, yeah. talking about When he was talking about the new heaven and the new earth And where uh, the, the point where it says and there is no longer Any sea And this whole idea that actually The sea were these places of chaos And the fact that there was no sea mean that I think, this is my recollection Was that then everything was Kind of perfectly ordered And I just, as he was talking I was like oh my goodness, wait a second I think I can see where this is going. A
0: revelation moment.
1: A revelation moment with Dr. Paul Spilsbury. Have a listen.
5: But there's lots of interesting ways in which Revelation also draws on kind of um, you could say cultural references again without quoting anything directly. Uh-huh. But like, say the whole depiction of um, of the forces of evil of Satan as a seven headed sea monster. Mm-hmm. That's an idea that you find already, and you find it in the Old Testament. Mm. But the Old Testament is itself drawing on mythology. It's drawing Mm. on Canaanite mythology of Leviathan, and also on sort of Babylonian, uh, Mesopotamian uh, creation myths kind of thing. The idea that uh, creation was formed in a kind of a time of conflict between... The god of light called Marduk Uh and this serpent of chaos called Tiamat, and Marduk kills Tiamat and then cuts its body up and Uh makes the world out of the dead carcass of the dragon, kind of a thing. Is, you know, there's hints of that, and certainly, you know, you've got straightforward um, usage of this idea that the serpent, you could say, of the book of. Genesis has become now a seven-headed dragon. That's definitely drawing on kind of this cultural reference.
0: Yeah, coming out of the sea, like like, yeah. yeah.
5: And so even, but then it's got it's got links to the Book of Daniel and stuff as well because these monsters, these empires, they come up from the sea. So anything that comes up from the sea seems to come up from the forces of chaos, and land is seen as the sort of the stable place that's God's creation. And it's like the forces of chaos are always trying to overwhelm and kind of claw it back, kind of take the land back. It's like the flood is, mm. a, in a sense, metaphorically, it's like chaos reverting the world back mm. to a pre-creation state. Yeah. And so there's already in the book of Genesis this theme of a kind of a recreation, like when the world emerges from the flood, it's like it's being made all over again. Yeah, yeah. And revelation is drawing on some of those kinds of themes It's like the forces of mm-hmm. chaos that are clearly associated with the seven-headed dragon. Um, but they've got this, they've almost got an incarnational form and the, they, the forces of chaos get incarnated in the successive empires that arise. But what's sort of chilling and dramatic about the way that revelation depicts this situation is that you remember in Daniel there's these four empires that kingdoms mm. that come out of the sea. There's also a beast that comes up out of the sea in, uh, in Revelation chapter 13. And if you l- compare the, the descriptions of the four creatures in Daniel to the one beast in Revelation 13, you find that Revelation's beast incorporates into it certain bits of every one oh. of those previous empires. So, like, it's partly a bear, partly a lion, it's got these teeth and so on. And even that little horn— it gets referenced because there's this blasphemous, blasphemous attempt to
0: overthrow God, um, to crush the saints, and all of that. So, yeah. the way, yeah, maybe you're taught, well, I was taught when I was a kid, was like, you know, uh, you you make treasures in heaven, and God is going back to heaven to prepare a, a place for us. Some translate a mansion, then you have the streets of gold, and then you have the, the sea of, gla- of, of glass, and they were like, yeah, I'm waiting for that. And, like, <laughs> when you say that, that's most likely. Not the, not the reality is like heartbreaking for a lot of people. For my my, my small kid inside is like, what? I was promised street of gold and a mansion.
5: I think what you can say is this: is that these pictures are pointing to an amazing and mm. beautiful reality that is more amazing than you can actually imagine. Mm. So I remember, Paul says that it hasn't even entered into the hearts and minds of those that have been called what mm. is actually in uh-huh. store. So this is a—it's a picture of hope. It's a picture of comfort, of uh, restoration, mm. of of all things, the, of shalom. Because we've got the evocation of the garden. You know, there's the mm. tree of life there. Yeah. There's the river of life. Um, there's the, the tree that's got the fruit for the healing of the nations there. So. I think you'd be wrong to be disappointed about this. Yeah, exactly. But you know, so what is gold? It's not just gold. Like that, the the substances that are referenced are the substances that in the Old Testament are all associated with the high priest's garments. Uh-huh. So again, it's like this is the priestly place. Mm. You don't need mm. a a specific uh, temple or a priest mm. to kind yeah. of help you, or you're you're in the jewelry box of God's presence, and, you know, what that will be like for us is not really possible to really imagine. I mean, for example, it says there's not going to be any night. Yeah. You can't really imagine what that would be like to never sleep. You know, there's no night, Mm. because night happens just metaphorically to stand for darkness, and John doesn't want to say there's going to be darkness there, so... There's, there's no darkness mm. in that picture, and there's no sea. And there, too, it's like, What? No chaos. There's no chaos. no chaos.
0: yeah. Woohoo. Exactly, Claire. There's no <laughs> sea.
1: <laughs> oh, that's so great. Because there's, yeah, right.
0: So,
5: there's no need for a temple, mm. and there's no place for the forces of chaos. Mm. They're
0: completely excluded from it. Dang. And moment number 12 from the podcast, from this uh, like three and a half years of doing the podcast, the one and only John Swinton. People love John Swinton because he talks about really, uh, you could be like sensitive, sometimes complicated topics of mental health. And, and I was like, oh man, this is going to be really hard to talk uh, to talk about and maybe even hard to talk to like John Swinton because, you know, it's, it's uh, a heavy subject, but he made it I mean, he made it easy. He made it, you know, it, w- wasn't, it wasn't uncomfortable to talk about, you know, sensitive topics. And, uh, Insightful, yeah. Yeah, this, was, this is our episode number 61, titled, I have never met a mentally healthy person. That's a phrase John Swinton said. And I was like, oh, it, I mean, it was refreshing. Just, just, just have a listen to that one.
1: I think there's such thing as a mentally healthy person.
3: No, depends what you mean by mental health. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. I've never met one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hello, my name is Fabio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I had your number straight away. At right. yeah, no, <laughs> right. least man. The, uh, well, it depends. Yeah. It does depend how you de- define it. I mean, the way we, uh, we've been talking about it in class, and I've been trying to help people think a little bit, is that within because we have such a biomedicalized culture it's very difficult for people to think about health and ill health um, without first thinking about medicine. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. medicine is a particular way of understanding health, which for the most part is either to stop things going wrong or to fix things that have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? And so uh, if, you know, if you have cancer, you use medical technology to identify a, a broken bit and fix it, hopefully through chemi- chemotherapy or radiotherapy mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And we tend to think that that's what it is. So you, if you take that understanding, that cultural understanding, and say, oh, what is mental health? And presumably you'll assume that mental health is the opposite of mental ill health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you, are, you either are well or you have depression. You're well, you have bipolar disorder, whatever it is. But the Bible doesn't have any word like to, mm. similar to biomedical understandings of the health. Mm-hmm. The closest word is the word shalom, which is used, I think, 159 times or something in, in Scripture. And the core meaning of shalom is, is justice, righteousness, and holiness, to be in right relationship with God. And so to be healthy is to be in right relationship with God, right? So you can be uh, an Olympic sprinter and be really unhealthy you can be the world's richest and most hedonistic person and be really unhealthy and you can be dying of cancer and be really healthy mm-hmm. and you can be in the midst of a psychotic ex- uh, episode and still be really healthy in that sense. So health is defined by your relationship with God mm-hmm. not by mm-hmm. your physical state or your, your psychological state and so healing in that sense, although there's lots of dimensions to healing, is enabling people to remain in right relationship with God, even in the midst of the, whatever they're going through because some people, they're for there's a physical illness or a psychological illness they're always going to have to live with it it's -hmm. not going to go away Mm -hmm. and and but that doesn't mean you're constantly unhealthy that doesn't mean that Mm -hmm. you're you're framed We sometimes say that people are chronically ill that that doesn't have to be that way Mm -hmm. because if you think of yourself as chronically ill or if you other people think of you as chronically ill that really narrows your life choices like because you become a patient in Mm -hmm. that way Mm But if you think yourself as possibly not only healthy, but able to participate in the, the, the um, uh, life and all of its fullness that Jesus promises in John's Gospel, even in the midst of your, your uh, experiences, then that gives you a new set of possibilities. Mm. And the, the key word being possibilities. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Moment 11 uh, in this Reflections on the Podcast is the episode called The Art of Neighbouring with Jen Richards and Barry Jung and uh, that was a great conversation about what it means to be good neighbours and both Jen and Barry have thought a lot and lived into that and it was just fun hearing the different creative ways that they're trying to be neighbours Barry in particular has started a garden and has worked out ways to kind of awkwardly but kind of honestly engage neighbours and has just seen beautiful fruit in that Um, so The Art of Neighbouring episode 32 have a listen
6: my wife and I, we started to be more intentional to get to know our neighbors five years ago. And so since I've left work, it's maybe it's picked up a pace or two. Mm. Um, but for the first little while, this sort of sabbatical that I'm on has been really about being still and listening to what God is up to. And, and um, as I'm still and being present with god i see all the stuff that he's doing around my neighborhood Mm -hmm. so just being present with neighbors that walk by so for example if i'm you know walking down the street and i meet someone strike up a conversation i'll be present with them and i'm usually not usually we're you know i think we're focused on the task at hand Mm -hmm. i'm going to the mall and so you just kind of focus on that but just to be more aware of who's around you and Uh, The built environment around you too, and just Mm -hmm. to see what God is already doing in our neighborhood. So, Mm -hmm. um, for me, I've I've really been more aware of things that have been going on in my neighborhood, and rather than having my own agenda, just to join in with what God is already doing, and Mm -hmm. and the Spirit moves me in that direction.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. And how? um, What's you? We were talking a bit earlier, and you were. We were talking about this kind of this verse uh, in Leviticus that says. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over the vineyard a second time, or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor, leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Now you were doing some stuff that you didn't even realise that you were being biblical.
6: Yeah.
1: Yes. So that's what we're talking. So tell us a little bit about how yeah. you've been sort of living. How, yeah, tell us a little bit about your garden. Yeah,
6: I, I, I mean, let us just let me back a bit. So so five years ago, um, we heard some stories about neighboring and people having a party, getting together, and neighbors would come in. Neighbors have lived here for 20, 30, 40 years, something like that, and they come to this gathering, and for the first time, they get to know each other, but they've been in the neighborhood, maybe living beside each other for like 20, 30 years. Mm. And so at the same time, The Vancouver Foundation, they put out a survey indicating one of the biggest social issues in the city, and really any urban city, is social isolation. Mm -hmm. And so my wife and I looked at each other after this sort of talk and and kind of thought, hmm, we only know like two neighbors. And it's a couple that lives across the street. So we, we could do better. So we became quite intentional at that point, or tried to be intentional, to get to know our neighbors. Um long story short, we had a Christmas party, we invited people, only two people showed up. And it was the two that we knew. So we kind of figured, what's going on here? Why don't why don't they know us? Why didn't they come? Like we had all this wine and cheese and just lots of food and um and what we realized was that they didn't know who we were. I mean I we just sent the invitation through the mail slots and but they didn't know who we were. So how do we get to know them and how do they get to know us? So that following spring I built two garden boxes in our front yard and grew vegetables there mm. and that drew a lot of curiosity in you know, what what are you building here what are you growing why are you growing vegetables on Canby Street and this is a major for those that don't know it's it's a major artery and it's just weird mm. and so um, but in hindsight you know as you you know reference Leviticus um, in a sense that garden is for the folks that, that walk by for our neighbors if they want the vegetables. but really, it's it was it was a way for us to connect with our neighbors. Mm. And there was a lot there's been a lot of connection. we've We've expanded the garden in the front yard. and so there's a lot of connection and interaction, not just us, but other people who stop by mm. and check things out and then they bump into other people. So it's kind of become a bumping spot mm. uh, for for neighbors and certainly for us. Mm. There you go in moment number 10 is
0: with the one and only merriam coalition and this like it's is actually episode number 54 it's called rediscovering biblical faith with merriam coalition this one was almost the most listened to podcast of season two i mean of 2019 until it got beat by will taylor later who but uh, people re- we had so much feedback with this uh, episode you know Mary Coalition she's I don't know if I can say this she's a sweetheart and she's I mean so wise and in and, and, uh, the the part that really the really uh, and that's the part you're going to listen to a little snippet is when she said that the way people uh, in the Bible would understand how faith works it was different than what we understand what is faith that is not just uh that I yeah I mentally believe whatever you're selling it was a little different, so uh, here's the snippet obviously in the Bible we have the word faith everywhere being thrown thrown oh, by yeah. I know used by Paul by 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 e- almost everyone right right so in my head is uh did they all had the same uh idea of what faith was so because my question is uh James you know he says faith mm-hmm. by itself. If it is not accompanied by action, it's dead. It's dead. <laughs> so, so is faith for him the same thing as for Paul, or the same thing as for the author of Hebrew, the mm-hmm. Hebrews? Because uh, you know it, it's very explicit what faith is in Hebrews eleven, right? Mm-hmm. It's very explicit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but do you think they all had the same exact concept of okay, this is faith? All we're of us we're about talking the about thing. the exact mm-hmm. same right. thing. Do you think?
7: I... Yeah. Or do
0: they, they complement <laughs> each other? I think or? they more
7: complement each other. I think okay. that's a great
1: way and to it, is it a actually. sense of that
7: different things, giving different yeah. facets of a one... Of exactly. A, so, yeah. for Paul, it's very often that initial faith in Christ. Like, as he says in Corinthians, this seems like foolishness. Like... Christ crucified? You wouldn't have a Messiah crucified? Mm. That's just bizarre on all fronts. Mm. And we're, you know, 2,000 years into this Christian thing, so we're like, yeah, of course, a cross, that's great! (laughs) Um, But in that ancient world, like, this is a bizarre... So, to put your faith in a crucified God and accept that that is the way to reconciliation with God Mm. is how I think Paul most often tends to use faith. Um, But then he also has those lines like faith working itself out through love, Mm. um, and that faith you know, bears fruit and this sorts of language comes through Paul a little bit, but, the, but more often than not, when he's trying to help his people understand what faith is, it's that you need to accept that this is the only, the Christ crucified is the only way mm-hmm. to reconciliation with God. And then with someone like um, James or the author of Hebrews, it seems to be a little bit more, I mean, because Hebrews… 10, right before you get to Hebrews 11, um, has a whole lot about persevering in the faith mm. and not giving way, not giving up, not not quitting. And so, I feel like there's actually, um, do not throw away your confidence, do not throw away your faith, like, persevere. And James is the same kind of message. If you do not persevere in this mm. faith, then it's dead. Like, it it has no life to it. It's mm. not just, it, it's just an intellectual idea, but in the Jewish mindset, an intellectual idea can't save you. It's what you do. It's your praxis that oh, reveals- Oh, you have to say that again, though. <laughs> the intellectual ideas yeah, yeah, don't yeah. save you? <laughs> yeah. it's it's Yeah. It, just having an idea means very little other than how it lands in your life, because what you do reveals what you actually believe. Uh-huh. If you actually believe that God is trying to transform you and that God is at work transforming you- then you will find that through the Spirit you are being transformed. If you actually believe it's just a head knowledge of like I'm saved, I've got my fire insurance, uh, I'm not mm. going to hell, um, then you don't actually feel like your life needs to be changed, and that is not a living faith. A living faith is something that is transformative. That is uh, the power of God at work in us, as Paul says. Mm-hmm. Like that's I think what yeah. they're often on about with the, the with with faith. I mean, you see in Hebrews 11, it's by faith that Abraham did crazy things. Mm. By faith, he leaves his homeland and goes, I don't know where. Mm, Like, what kind of faith do you have to have that actually makes you act in such a dramatic way that you would leave everything and go to a place I'll show you? Um, Mm. (laughs) That's Mm. a very dramatic action of faith. It's not just an intellectual belief that, yeah, I believe in there's one God, but I'm just going to stay where I am because he'll love me wherever I am. But I still believe. I still believe. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) So... Yeah, I don't know if that's... Oh, no, that, that's that's like super shocking to, to me
0: because <laughs> we <we've coughs> Sorry for interrupting your podcast, but Claire Perini has something important to say.
1: This podcast is a ministry of Regent College and relies on the support of generous donors. If you've enjoyed our conversation today or any other day, please consider making a small donation to the college at rgnt. Net forward slash give. That's R R G N
0: How <laughs> oh, do you say R? R uh, uh. <laughs>
1: R Okay, let me do that again. R g, r-, g- <laughs> r. Please consider making a small donation to the college at RGNT dot forward slash give. That's r g n t. dot net slash give.
0: Now, if you really want to make our day, when you donate, there's a comment box. Please leave a note saying that the podcast sent you. Thank you.
8: Thank you. And enjoy
0: the rest of the podcast.
1: Moment number nine was uh, our episode with Wesley Hill. Not Wesley. Wes- Wesley. Uh, about asceticism in the 21st century. And we talked about all sorts of things. Um, The things I remember really stuck out for me in that episode was this whole idea that all of our desires are disordered and all of them need to be reoriented toward Christ, whether single or married, Mm -hmm. Um, wherever we kind of lie on kind of our understanding of sexuality um, all of our all of our desires are uh, need to be reoriented and so yeah. and asceticism as being part of that process
0: so, yeah i mean as i was listening to this one you know asceticism is not a word people i don't like and pe- a lot of people don't like but uh, you know i was i was looking for the best snippet i can show you oh man i i didn't remember this but this episode is so good in this in its entirety it's, I was like, "Oh, that's good. Okay, I can use that." Oh no, no, this is better. I can use that. One. No, 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 no. This is good. I mean, the whole episode—it's—it's crazy good. I didn't remember it was that good, but, but where's—I mean, he—he's a machine. He's good. Enjoy. Yeah. So the idea is for for all the aesthetic practices to guide you towards Christ, to point you towards towards Christ, right? Because I have some friends. Just all of a sudden I'll be like oh man I've, I've been giving myself too many pleasures yeah and they're like I these should, are Christian yeah, friends yeah, yeah and I yeah. should stop and, and I'll be like why <laughs> it's like I, I went to the movie too many times <laughs> and, and, and just because I, I experienced pleasure too many times I should stop I'll mm-hmm. be like huh mm-hmm. why interesting you think and like people for example uh they just deprive themselves from sleeping on the bed and they would just sleep on the floor wow and be like <laughs> I'll admit I haven't gone that far. Yeah, say, <laughs>
1: like, I've got a very comfortable mattress. Yeah, I'd be
0: like, how, so how is that connecting you to Jesus? Yeah. Or or yeah. sleep deprivation or or I don't, stuff like that. I'll be like, Yeah, okay, that does not make sense to me at all. How is that pointing so, so 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 then 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 you have uh people like psychologists kinda having their input there so uh-huh. it'd be like, Huh, you think you're being yeah. pious right but you know you know that's red flags everywhere right, right? right, so, right. so so i, I know right. i know i know uh uh aestheticism like it's been um linked to uh self-harm or yeah. to perfectionism or yeah. to eating disorders yeah anorexia sure when it's it's it, but you had a behind the, the title of Pious, or mm. or looking for God, right? But then you're hiding uh, wrong motives. Yes,
9: and I do think it's striking the way the Gospel, the, the four Gospels, you know, the life of Jesus. He does recognize how asceticism can become perverted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he 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 points to the Pharisees, for example, and he says, you know, you guys are are fastidious about tithing in a certain way. You know, mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna deny yourselves a tenth of your income, and you're gonna make sure you tithe your mint and dill mm-hmm. and cumin or whatever. But you neglect the weightier matters of the law. You know, the, the 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 ultimate asceticism that God wants is for us to lay down our lives for the sake of those who are suffering, those who are on the margins, those who are who are ill. And so if you're if your asceticism is about self-aggrandizement, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna fast so that everybody sees how holy I am, or 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 I'm gonna fast because I need to for my own kind of psychological um, mm. uh, satisfaction mm. you know that's a kind of asceticism that turns you back in on yourself mm. and is not healthy either psychologically or spiritually right um and so i just think i just think every area of human practice we always have to ask ourselves in what way am i um participating in a sinful form of this mm. a, a damaging form of this a mm-hmm. form that's not going to make my life more flourishing but is actually going to you know, hinder me. And I think mm. the examples you just gave are, are examples of asceticism going badly. Yeah, mm. And we always have to be alert to that. Mm. I mean, that's part of living in a fallen world, right? Like even, yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot about that line from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, mm. where, you know, th- that book is, is a fictional uh, demon, you know, Uncle Screwtape, writing to his, his mm. protege, mm. His, his demon trainee. Mm. And he says, nowhere do we tempt more successfully than on the very steps of the altar. And mm. what what he means by that is w- at the very moment when you think you're being most godly uh-huh. most holy that's where the devil can come in and twist it, yeah you know mm. like like you can think you're doing the very best thing you yeah. you're standing at the altar with your offering with your yeah. hands open to receive communion, and you're you're eaten up with pride, you know you're yeah. eaten up with hatred for the person standing next to you or something so i I just think I think that's an acute insight isn't it mm-hmm. like like even our best efforts mm-hmm. are still in need of mm-hmm. god's grace and, mm-hmm. and yeah. healing and mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so so i want to i don't want to say asceticism full stop yeah is god's will like we always have to be mm-hmm. thinking what is a truly christian asceticism what mm-hmm. is a grace-based mm-hmm. asceticism mm-hmm. what is an evangelical asceticism yeah mm.
1: yeah Can you talk to us a little bit about kind of longing and desire? Because lots Mm -hmm. of this, like the things that we want, and the things, the the reason they're hard is because we want them, and there's desire. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about that deep sense of kind of longing and desire, and how that. Yeah. Just talk, because I know you could talk well. Sure, sure, yeah.
9: (laughs) Well, one of the one of the things. Go, yeah, yeah. One of the things I'm struck by, like as I read um, some of the literature that's out there on asceticism, Mm. um, from people like Sarah Coakley, Mm. who's a a well-known Anglican theologian. Is that asceticism is not about giving up desire it's about intensifying desire yeah so so mm. think about again the analogy of like an athlete you know you are you are being pretty strenuous about what you're eating, what you're drinking, how much sleep you're getting, mm. how you're training in the gym, but it's because you have such a burning desire mm. for running. Mm-hmm. For the marathon, mm. for the pleasure of reaching that finish line, you're willing to sacrifice lesser pleasures mm. in order to get there. Mm. And so, I think I think what Sarah Coakley would say is that if you think about asceticism as just hating desire, hating longing, mm-hmm. that's not right. Mm-hmm. It's about actually taking a deep longing. Mm-hmm. Christians would say a longing for God, a longing to, to, to a longing for heaven, a longing for our, our new creation home. And trying to let go of everything in life that would distract you from that. Mm -hmm. Mm. You know, that that image in in the book of Hebrews where it says, you know, let us throw off everything that hinders us as we run the race. Uh, Let's get rid of every possible distraction because Mm. our lives are all about desire. Desire Mm. for God. Mm. Desire for true communion with other human beings. Desire for ultimately what we're made for which Mm. is to enjoy and experience god Mm. um so uh i i just think we have to bear in mind that christianity is not anti-longing it's not Mm. Mm anti-desire it's ultimately about saying well again to quote c.s lewis you know a lot of us are content with making mud pies in the slums when we're being offered a fabulous holiday at the at the ocean Mm -hmm. like like christianity is about saying Give up your paltry, shadowy desire, mm-hmm. so that you can experience
0: real desire. Mm-hmm. You know, the real, yeah. the real thing.
9: And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um,
0: in, in, in my, head, sorry, go ahead. In my head, is uh, thought comes to mind, and it's you, you want you practice this ascetic uh, practices the because you want Jesus, right? And the thing is, people say, "I already have Jesus." What do you mean? You want Jesus? You already are you a believer? Yeah, you already have Jesus. What? What do you, what do you mean with 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 uh, leaving these things because you want more of Jesus is like and and more Jesus and and I, I know a lot of people I have some had some conversations they they don't kind of get this extra desire for more Jesus yeah and this in this and then leaving even more stuff for more Jesus and having re- retreats and having silent retreats mm-hmm. so all sorts of retreats because mm-hmm. c- they mm-hmm. want Jesus mm-hmm. and it, a lot of people don't get it we're like what yeah. I don't. I don't know what, what you what you want. What are you yeah. asking for? What are yeah. you looking for? Yeah. When yeah. When you do those things, what what more Jesus are you saying? Are you talking right. about? Right. Right. Mm. Well, see, this is where
9: this is where I think um, the way Christians think about salvation and the Christian life mm-hmm. is important to keep in mind because we, we basically say we do and we don't have Jesus, right? Mm. Jesus has come. He has decisively intervened. He has saved us, but he's gone away. And he's left us his Holy Spirit mm-hmm. to be his personal presence with us. And so we are both comforted by his presence, but we're kind of heartsick with his absence. And so you you find Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13 saying, I'm longing for the day when I see him face to face. Because I don't yet. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. yet see as I will one day see him. Mm-hmm. I don't yet have that that." Well, it's what, it's what the theological tradition calls the beatific vision. Mm-hmm. You know, Hans Borsman has written a book about yeah. this recently. Um, and so it's not that we're fasting or praying or practicing solitude in order to have a relationship with Jesus that we don't already have. We do already have yeah. one. Yeah. We do already have the Holy Spirit. But it's about um, setting our hearts more and more on that. I mean, think, think, mm-hmm. think maybe about the analogy of a marriage. If a marriage never... Um, if married couples never went on dates, for example, mm. You said, we we already have each other. Why do we need to go on yeah. dates? You know, why why do we need to uh, go on a honeymoon anniversary trip? You know, mm. I think we would think that was pretty odd. We'd mm. say, why don't you want to go deeper in mm. this relationship? Yeah. Why don't you want to go even, even more intimate with one another yeah. in that sense? So I think, I think asceticism when we're, when you're practicing it well, it's about saying, Lord, I know that I, I know that you're already with me. I know um, that I already, I already have you, but I want to know you more. Yeah. Uh, and I want to, Set my heart on the day when I get to see you face to face, because that's what I'm longing for. Yeah. You know, I, I love that that verse in Job where he says, uh, "My eyes will see you, and not another." Mm-hmm. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what he wants. Mm-hmm. He wants to see the one he knows. Um, and and that day is not yet. We're not yet mm-hmm. there. We're not yet uh, experiencing the resurrection of the body and mm-hmm. the and the beatific vision. But mm-hmm. we want to we want to prepare for it.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So
9: Jesus says, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God." Mm-hmm. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, right now our hearts are impure. We love all kinds of different things. We're distracted by all kinds of different things. Mm-hmm. And so asceticism is about saying, Lord, I want my heart to be single minded. I want to be single hearted mm. in terms of my devotion to you. Mm. And I'm just I know that I'm my head and my heart are buzzing with all kinds of different you know addictions and attractions mm-hmm. etc um but but i'm i'm choosing to to practice a day of quiet today or i'm mm-hmm. choosing to to skip lunch today just to remind myself that ultimately what my heart really wants even if i don't always know it what my heart really wants is you
1: mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: just as we're kind of finishing up here just thinking through um kind of where might we start there there's kind of I wonder if you could talk about singleness and marriage as ascetic practices, mm. in the sense that if we're saying asceticism is contextual, and it might be there might be something specific that God's calling you to. In some senses, most of us are going to put, fall in one right. or other of those categories in the life circumstances yep. of either yep. single or married. And how might how might we see mm. those places as places of asceticism yeah. in different yeah. ways? Yeah, I know you've
9: got a good ideas about that as well, <laughs> well we, Yeah, I, I'm here at Regent this week I've been teaching a class and we've kind of been exploring that particular mm. question And it um, looks
0: like she's been taking the class I'm just, I'm just, it's, it's curious how, how you come out with, with all these <laughs> all those smart questions right.
9: <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I, so I, I started thinking about this, you know, marriage as a form of ascetic practice, singleness as a form of ascetic practice mm. Partly because I didn't hear anybody else talking that way. Like the way I've grown up thinking about marriage is it's like, it's all about fun. Like if you can, you know, the the talk you hear mm. in youth group is if you, if you save yourself for marriage, yeah. once you get there, marriage is the finish line. And it's like, you're going to enjoy it from yeah. then on out. And you know, Six, five times a day till you die. Right? Exactly, That's What's, exactly. What do you think when you're a teenager? <laughs> totally. Yeah. If I can just hold on, <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll get there for that. <laughs> yeah. You know. But you know, it's striking when you look at, for instance, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, part of the the wedding ceremony is they put crowns on uh-huh. the bride and groom, Ooh. and those crowns are meant to be martyrs' crowns. <laughs> <laughs> like like you're signing, you're signing up for a life of martyrdom. <laughs> in in other words marriage isn't just about like your appetites getting indulged uh-huh. more importantly, it's about you pledging yourself to lay down your life for this person. You're, you're marrying. Mm-hmm. Um, you are saying in sickness and in health, and it may very well be sickness mm-hmm. uh, for richer, for poor. And it may very well be poor till death do us part. I am going to try to love you like Christ loves mm-hmm. the church. Mm-hmm. Like I am going to try to um, place your needs above my own. What is that except for asceticism? Mm-hmm. That's asceticism, right? Like we're we're giving up, we're giving up our own preferences. Mm-hmm. Like like I mean, it's isn't it interesting how you know you talk to a lot of Christians uh, who are one or two years into marriage and you say, "How's it going?" And they're like, "Wow, I didn't realize That's how selfish I was. I, <laughs> I didn't realize <laughs> how selfish I was." You know, <laughs> and I think similarly about singleness. Um, you know, singleness is all about um, voluntarily or, or sometimes Uh involuntarily. Right. I mean, you don't always, Mm. you don't always get to choose to be married. Like sometimes it just kind of lands in your lap that you don't find the right person. Yeah. And so what do you do with that? Like it's, it's, it's not simply about kind of having all the freedoms you want. Oh, I'm single. So I can just do whatever I like all the time. I can go on vacation whenever I like. Mm. No, it's, it's, it's about a life of embracing, you know, I'm, I'm in a painful circumstance. I mm. maybe would like to be married but I, I can't for whatever reason. Mm. I deal with loneliness but I'm gonna use this as an opportunity to, to seek to serve others mm. to seek to use my freedoms not just to indulge in my own weekend plans, but mm. maybe I'll call up my married friend and say, hey, can I help with with uh, taking care of the kids this week? Is there anything mm. you know I can mm. um, you know it's it's seeking as Paul says in first Corinthians 7, you have an opportunity here you you unlike married people, you have a lot of opportunity to be concerned about the things of the Lord Mm -hmm. and how you can serve the church, how you can serve the world. So in that way, singleness alongside marriage is also about you learning how selfish you are Mm -hmm. and you having some of those hard edges sanded Mm -hmm. down so that you can become a holier person, Mm -hmm. a more loving person. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Mm -hmm. So in that way, I think, you know, like, like any other Christian calling, marriage and marriage and singleness both are Mm. are ascetic
0: in that
6: Mm -hmm. in that way Mm -hmm. they
0: require Mm self-denial and in our moment number eight we had the only one what the one and only Krish Kendaya. Uh, this is our episode number 89 and he was talking about uh, orphanages in the foster care system and this really uh Sort, sort of became personal because me and my wife we, we, we want to adopt here in Canada and he was talking about uh, the need and the issues uh, with foster care and uh, with foster care system and orphanages mm. and it was really eye-opening for me and uh, yeah just just have a listen this is a very important and sensitive uh, subject that he can handle with,
8: with such grace and there you go have a listen amazing I would say it's a little bit like global mission. Is it everybody's responsibility? No, is it everybody's calling to be a cross-cultural missionary? I don't think so. Some people are specifically called to it. Is it our collective responsibility to make sure the gospel is preached and demonstrated to the ends of the earth? Yes. So we all have responsibility, even if we don't all have the same specific calling. So caring for the vulnerable is a mandate upon the whole people of God. And we all have a role to play in it, and it might be different. I mean, the numbers Mm -hmm. in the UK, um, so we started a charity called Home for Good, and it's specifically calling the church to action around uh, fostering, adoption, and caring for refugee children uh, who are here in the UK. And when we first started, there was about 5,000 children waiting to be adopted in the UK. And on top of that, we needed about 8,000 more foster families. Now, we did the maths, we did some research, we checked nobody else was in this field already. And then we came across a fun statistic that when we added up the databases of the largest kind of evangelical groups in the UK, we came up with at least 15,000 churches. Have you done the maths? Mm. I don't need every Christian to foster and adopt. I need one new foster carer or adoptive parent per church and the rest of the church to wrap around those families and those children. And we've done it. We've met the entire need right now. The stats in North America are slightly worse. Well, proportionally. So in the US, there are 100,000 children waiting to be adopted in the foster care system. And it's completely free to adopt these children. Uh, You might have heard of people raising money for adoption. That happens quite a lot. The only way you need to raise money for adoption is is if you're adopting internationally. That's a whole conversation we can have if you want to have it. Or Mm -hmm. you're trying to do private adoption. And private adoption is when you're trying to get a baby from a mother who maybe has an unplanned pregnancy and she needs some help. And there are legal fees in order for you to be able to have this baby from birth. But if you adopt through the state system, it's completely free to adopt in the US and in Canada. So no one needs to raise any money for adoption. So in the Mm -hmm. UK, care leavers, so children that age out of foster care, normally around 18. In some cases, you can stay a little bit longer, maybe till 21. But kids that age out of foster care make up about 1% of the UK population, but they make up 25% of the homeless population. Yeah, hugely overrepresented Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
8: of our prison population I was uh, at a meeting with our prison minister recently and uh, he said between 40 and 50% of the UK prison population are people that have aged out of the foster care system right and of uh, sexually exploited women uh, working as prostitutes in the UK in some areas it's as many as 70% are young women that have aged out of foster care so you're hearing me those are all issues that yeah. the church cares about. I know loads of churches that are doing prison ministry. I know loads of churches that are passionate about homelessness and I know loads of I in mean, loads of charities that are doing work um, to stop trafficking. And that's that's brilliant. But mm-hmm. I'm going well hang on there's a very costly radical but you know at least simple solution if we were fostering or adopting the children at age three or four, providing them with loving secure, loving, secure, stable families, there is way less chance these kids are going to end up homeless, in prison or in prostitution. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, why do we wait until the system has kind of chewed these kids up and spat them out before we'll go and help? And the kind of help we want to offer is I'll go on a rota, Once a month, I'll give a couple of hours and I'll do the the homeless thing. And that's a big tick. I've done my justice bit. And I want to go, look, there's another level of justice that says Mm -hmm. this is not a hobby. This is not a a rota. This is not a program. This is normal Christian loving hospitality by welcoming vulnerable children into your homes, loving them as your own flesh and blood for however long it takes. And we're Mm -hmm. not being naive. You know, kids that are in the care system in the Western world have normally experienced something terrible, something catastrophic, something like um, drug addiction in the family, sexual abuse, physical violence. Um, these are kids that are going to carry a whole bunch of emotional scars. And it's not all going to go away just if you say your bedtime stories or you read the Bible to them or they bring them to the youth group. These are going to be ongoing challenges. But my bottom line is that what kind of love did God show us? His love was absolutely radical. You know, he saw us, God saw us in our need, and he did everything necessary to welcome us into his family, and he continually pours grace into our lives so that we can survive. So I think we're just called to model that same kind of love to kids in need.
1: So that friends is part one of episode Mm. 100 where we reflect back on a number of just key moments in the podcast that we wanted to just highlight for you and hopefully that encourages you to go back and listen to the whole episode either for the first time or again yeah maybe count how many accents you've heard in all the different podcasts (laughs) it's definitely a bit of a range
0: I mean, the accents are actually badges for the for the podcast. I mean, we have to have all the accents there, <laughs> hands down. And, and yeah, please, please, this is, are just just snippets. And I went, like I was talking to Claire. I just went back and listened to a bunch. I mean, it's it, it has nothing to do with being Claire, but these people are so good to listen to, and and so easy to listen to. So so I mean, these are just uh, our first eight, and then part two of our episode 100 is coming up so don't stop here and go listen to part number two
8: thanks for listening to the
0: regent college podcast
8: follow us on facebook instagram and twitter to discover more about regent college its upcoming events conferences courses and more content like this visit
5: regent.net that's r-g-n-t dot net.